So, all right, how many remember Y2K? Yeah. Does anybody remember Y1K? Nobody remembers Y1K. <laughs> well, actually, um, the story goes that on New Year's Eve, 999, so that was a little while ago, New Year's Eve, 999, a crowd pushed its way into St. Peter's Basilica uh, to hear the Midnight Mass. This is on New Year's Eve of 999, came in to hear the Midnight Mass led by Pope Sylvester II and People were there and some were trembling, some people were weeping, they were all on their knees or they were prostrate in prayer because this was the beginning of the end. It was 999, getting ready to turn to the year 1000, and so they just knew that the day of God's wrath was coming, the day of judgment was coming, because before months before this, there were reports of meteors and earthquakes, and across Europe, people were donating their land, their homes, their goods to the poor, so hopefully God would have mercy on their souls. Sins were being confessed, businesses were being neglected, lands were being uncultivated and dread, and so the tension was so thick in St. Peter's Basilica on 999 that as the clock ticked towards the end of the millennium, one account said that not a few of them died from fright that night. And then the clock struck 12, the year 1000. The crowd remained quiet, transfixed, daring to breathe, and then life went on. And here we are today. And guess what? It never happened. That was a tale that was created by a medieval guy. <laughs> but I had you on the edge of your seat, didn't I? Because you probably remember Y2K, right? I mean, we were all convinced the computers were going to turn over to 1101 and think it was 1901. And somehow the airlines were going to stop flying and electricity was going to shut off and the water was going to stop flowing. And I remember my dad, he was still a computer programmer in those days, and I remember them working lots of long hours to make sure that their programs all flipped correctly and things like that. But here's the deal. Fuel, fear fuels us, doesn't it? I mean, when we're afraid, that really fuels us. And, and, and you know, we're all fearful uh, of something. And we're especially fearful when we're hurting, right? If you get hurt by a relationship, you're really fearful about getting into another relationship. Or when you're hurt by an employer, you're really fearful about maybe future employers. Uh, because nobody in here, I know this, nobody in here likes to get hurt, right? We all like comfort. We all want to be at peace. We all want people to like us for who we are. But the reality is, in this life, we get hurt, we get hurt by people, we get hurt by things, we get hurt by circumstances, and the reality is a lot of us, it's just natural, I think, tend at times to live in fear. We live in fear of the rich and powerful because don't you know it that the rich and powerful seem to have a way of getting through things and not getting uh, arrested when the rest of us might get arrested. They don't seem to face the same punishments that we face, and so we're very fearful of the rich and powerful. Well, fear is just something that fuels us. So Paul and his team uh, had been on their second missionary journey, and they had come to this town called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the largest and most important city in Macedonia. It was the capital city of the province of Macedonia. It had a Roman highway called the Via Ignatia that ran right through it. So it was a major trade route, major north-south trade route passed through that. 
the religion of Thessalonica, they were uh, dedicated to emperor worship. In fact, they minted coins there in Thessalonica dedicated to Caesar. And so certainly they, they believed Caesar was God. And so any perceived attack, attack on Caesar was definitely not something uh, they would like. Of course, they had uh, the Egyptian gods also were in Thessalonica. Isis and uh, Osiris were the Egyptian gods that they worshipped there, as well as Roman gods. They had the Jewish synagogue. They had their local cult, which was known as the Cabrius cult. And so if you were to attack their local religious cult, Cabrius, uh, people thought that was attack on the city of themselves. So you can imagine that when Paul and, and his team, Timothy, Silas, came to town... And they start preaching that this carpenter, this Jewish carpenter named Jesus, was the savior of the world. That really got people upset. And I've told you this story over and over. Acts 17 talks about it. But, you know, the, the, a lot of prominent women became followers of Jesus. Paul had been there three weeks preaching in the synagogues. This was his normal way of doing it. And a lot of prominent ladies had come to Christ. A lot of uh, Greeks had come to Christ. And so the Jewish leaders got really upset. So they hired a bunch of unruly people. They went after Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas were staying at a guy's house, a guy named Jason, which is my cousin's name. Uh, so they got to Jason's house, and uh, Paul and Silas weren't there, but they drug Jason off and uh, threw him in jail, and so they paid the bail and got him out. But the folks came and found Paul and Silas said, you guys got to get out of town. These people want to kill you. And so in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were smuggled out of town, and then they went on to Berea. So here Paul and Silas had left a very young church. They may have only been there three weeks, maybe as long as two months, but uh, definitely uh, three weeks. And, um, and Paul and Silas, they've gone on to Berea, and they've gone on to other places, and Paul's now at this point, when he writes this letter, he's actually in Corinth. He was there for a year and a half. And so Paul is really concerned about the church in Thessalonica, what's going on. So he sends Timothy back to find out what's going on. And, of course, we know Timothy sends him a report and says, hey, it's really a healthy church full of healthy people. However, apparently they had some questions. And so as we get into the latter part of this first letter, Paul is apparently addressing some of the questions that the people had. And so we're, gonna, we're starting to look at that. And if you read between the lines in First Thessalonians, you can see that there was a lot of fear in the church. It was a good church. It was a healthy church. They were doing a lot of things. But there was a lot of fear because of persecution. I just want to share this with you. Uh, and you, you, you know this. Christ followers, and that's what I like to call Christians because some people use Christian and they're not Christians. So we're going to say Christ followers are often hurt by others, right? You, you've heard, been hurt by other people and things like that. And the fact of the matter is the church at Thessalonica was really under a lot of persecution. Again, they were in this area where they had the temples of Isis and, and, and Osiris, and they had their own local call to Cabrias there, and very big on emperor worship. And so when they start proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. People felt like that was an attack against the emperor. And so it really would irk the political leaders when, when there was the idea that this Jewish carpenter named Jesus was the Messiah. That really irked the synagogue leaders, the Jewish leaders in town. And, and so, so they were getting it from all sides. And, and I, we're not going to, we're going to flip through the book real quickly today. I'm going to show you a lot of passages real quick before we hone in our, on our main passage. But I want you to see this church was really being persecuted. I mean, just look at the references. For example, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and the Lord in spite of severe 
persecution. So these people were really under persecution. In fact, that word severe persecution can be legitimately also translated as trouble, distress, oppression, tribulation. In other words, you guys were really getting squeezed. And look, here's the deal. Nobody ever promised us that it was going to be easy in this world. Some of y'all saw the picture on Facebook this week of me and my horribly looking hair uh, out, outside. My stylist didn't show up in time. Um, but I, I've had this idea in my head um, for a long time, and I've just not been brave enough to do it. So this week we did it. I put a table out there. Annika made this big orange-yellow sign, yellow sign, whatever call it is, said, ask the pastor. And we had a big thing of water out there. And so I, I'm going to try and do this um, consistently. There it is. Um, and so I'm going to try and do this because I know people walk up and down the street. So I'm going to try and be out there maybe Wednesdays. I'm shooting for 11 to 1. Uh, I didn't bring an umbrella, so I was really getting sunburnt, so I came in. Um, but I had a lady that drove her car into our parking lot and got out of the car. She saw me and she said, I have a question. I have several questions I need to talk to you about. And so we had a, a great conversation. Her name was Constance. And um, so she was telling me about some stuff. And one of her struggles was, why does God allow bad things to happen to people who are truly trying to follow him? And you know, so I shared with her this verse that Jesus shared, and, and that is, you know this, John, Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three, I've told you these things so you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. All right, be courageous though, I've overcome the world. But the reality is, we're going to have suffering in this world. And again, if you read through 1 Thessalonians, you can see that. Chapter 2, verse 14, just throw it up here. It says, he says, you also have suffered the same things from the people of your own country. So they were suffering from their own relatives. I mean, these people were really getting hammered by their own relatives. Like, how can you believe this Jesus stuff? What do you mean this guy that died on a cross is some sort of, I mean, he died like a criminal. What do you mean he's the savior of the world? He rose again. Really? And so again, they were getting persecution from their own relatives. And, and so, and in fact, that, that word there that Paul uses for suffering was a different one than he used in chapter 1. And, and here it implies a sad feeling of a sick person. And in other words, it was sickening. On the one hand, they were getting persecuted by the Jewish leaders and the, the pagans and all that. But on here in chapter 2, they were getting persecuted by their own relatives. And it was so sickening to them. I mean, they were losing their family relationships over their faith in Christ. And so again, the reality is we're going to get hurt in this world. Again, uh, Paul says in, in chapter 3, he says, And we sent Timothy, and he says, To strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. They're having a lot of persecutions. And you know yourselves that we are appointed for this. In fact, we told you, and we were with you, as we told you previously, that we are going to suffer persecution. And you know it. And again, Paul himself, verse 7, he says, Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, we encourage you about your faith. So again, Christ's followers are going to be hurt. We're going to suffer persecution. People mock you, make fun of you. And I, I was reading a thing on Twitter last night, and a guy was mocking 
uh, a lady who took a stand for Christ and making all sorts of fun at her and, and stuff like that. And people are going to mock you. They're going to persecute things like that. And so here's these Christ followers. People are making fun of them. They're mocking them. And so a question that's running through their heads is, are we near the end? I mean, it's really bad, Paul. And maybe is it Jesus coming back soon? And, and, and what about those who are followers of Jesus who have died? What about them? And so there's this lot of questions because apparently when Paul was there, he was talking about the fact that Christ was coming back. And so they were having questions because of all these persecutions and things like that. And there was another persecution happening. It wasn't just from humans. In fact, in verse 9, look at this, because there's another persecution. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception you have from you, how you turn from idols to serve the true living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. When Paul was there, apparently he was talking to them and had talked to them about the second coming of Christ and maybe he, he talked about this coming wrath. And so they're kind of like, okay, what's going on here? Because we're getting persecuted from humans and then apparently this is coming wrath thing and what's, what's going on? And again, Christ followers will be hurt. I think we just need to accept that, okay? In this world, even in America... And I hate to say it, I hope it doesn't happen, but I see it coming in our country. I see it coming. And, you know, if it ever comes to that day where, you know, we're persecuted for our faith, don't ever say, well, God doesn't love me. No, he told you it was coming. He told you you were going to face it. And we've been fortunate. But the reality is Christ's followers will be hurt. But here's the great reality. Christ followers will be rescued. This is great, right? So it's not all about, hey, we're going to be hurt and there's not going to be any way out. We will be rescued. Now, again, if you go back and you look at the passage here, if you go back to that verse here, uh, who is going to be rescued? Well, notice he uses the word us. So who's going to be rescued? Christ followers, right? Who rescues us. From the coming wrath. Who's doing the rescuing? Look at who's going to rescue us from this coming wrath. Jesus, right? Jesus is going to rescue us from this coming wrath. This sounds like a personal thing, doesn't it, to you? Sounds like it to me. Jesus is going to personally rescue us from this wrath. Has this wrath happened? No, it's still in the future, right? We have not had whatever this coming wrath is. Now, we've had human persecution. That's no question. We've had that in the church, but whatever this coming wrath is, that hasn't been experienced. In fact, Paul makes it very specific. He calls it the wrath to come. And, and so even though this church here, here's one thing that really kept them going, and here's one thing that'll keep us going. The one thing that kept the church at Thessalonica going despite all this persecution is they kept looking forward to the future. They kept looking forward to the future. I don't know about you as a Christ follower, but the thing that keeps me going is knowing this ain't my home. Amen. I, I'm looking forward to the future. And the thing that kept them looking forward to was the future. In fact, real quickly, we'll just, just fall on the screen. Christ followers will be rescued. And he talks about that all throughout this letter. He says, for who is our hope and joy and crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his 
coming. So he's been talking to them about the future. Chapter verse 13, chapter 3. May he make your hearts blameless and holy before our Lord Jesus Christ at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. We're going to look at the passage here in chapter 4 just in a few minutes. And in chapter 5, he talks about the second coming of Christ. And then he closes at the end of his letter. He says this, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your spirit, soul, and body keep sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all throughout his letter, there's persecution. Yes, you're going to go in persecution. But all throughout his letter is sprinkled, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Don't give up. Christ's followers will be rescued. But on the other hand, not only are we enduring human persecution, but apparently there is a coming wrath that Jesus himself is going to save us from in the future. And so Paul ends his letter with, May God, the God of peace, himself sanctify you completely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way I read that is our body, soul, and spirit will be preserved complete from this whatever this wrath is to come. That we're not going to endure it. So here's what I want you to know. Christ's followers will be rescued from this coming wrath of God. We're not talking about a human persecution here. We are talking about a coming wrath of God. Now, Paul does not say we're going to be rescued from human persecution. Jesus never said that either. But what Paul does say is that Christ's followers will be rescued from the coming wrath of God. Now, you might say, oh, what is this wrath of God? Is this something that Paul made up? Maybe this is a new revelation that Paul is sharing about this coming wrath of God. Now, you have to remember that at this point, they don't have the New Testament, okay? They don't have the New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament. And if you look back in the Old Testament, you will see in the Old Testament, book of Zephaniah, how many of you all read that one lately? Book of Zephaniah, there is the wrath of God. I'm just going to, we're not going to read the whole chapter. I just want to give you an overview. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2, he says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And remember, this is the wrath of God. This is the Lord's declaration. That hasn't happened yet. I will sweep away every man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. Look at what he says in verse 15. And he talks a lot more about it. I, we just don't have time to read through everything, all the destruction. But at verse 15, he says, This day is a day of wrath. A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. He goes on, he says in verse 18, their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants on the earth. Obviously, this is not a human wrath. This is the wrath of God. Obviously, this is a worldwide wrath. Clearly, all the animals, people will die. This is God's wrath on the whole world. And 
at this point. So they, they knew this. This was in the Old Testament. This is what they had. So the Jews in the audience who grew up in the synagogue would have heard this passage read in their synagogue readings. And there's other passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and other passages that really talk about the day of the Lord's wrath. So they would have known this coming wrath is a wrath of God. But not only that, but Jesus actually alluded to this. Here's what Jesus said in John 21, verse 23. He says, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people so I don't know about you but that's not really pleasant right nobody wants to think about the destruction of mankind so here's the people in Thessalonica facing a lot of persecution from the hands of people and then there's this whole idea of the coming wrath of God. And so the Thessalonians were like, hey, Paul. And I, I believe they probably asked this to Timothy because I think Paul's addressing some questions here. Timothy, when you go back and see Paul, ask him, we've heard about this wrath of God. Are we going to go through this? And here's what he says, going back to verse 10. Jesus, who rescues us, talking to believers, from the coming wrath of God. And then he circles back to this at the end of his letter in verse chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God didn't save you so he could pour out his wrath on you. You are a child of God. God did not appoint you from wrath. So again, Christ follows be rescued from the coming wrath of God. So, so the Christ followers are like, okay, so if this coming wrath is, if this wrath is coming, what about believers who have died? What happens to them, Paul? And so they have questions because they're fearful. And so Paul addresses that. And so that's where we're going to land on our text today. So that was a big introduction, right? But, but I wanted to set the stage. So, so look at verse 13. Here's what Paul says. So this is our text today. We don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So again, there's, there's a question. What about Christ followers who have died, okay? And, and let me just say this real quick. Paul says it's okay to grieve. Sometimes as Christ followers, we're like, it's not, I shouldn't cry, they're in heaven. No, no, no. Cry, it's okay. You miss them. They're gone. You don't have them with you. It's okay to grieve. But you don't need to grieve if somebody doesn't have any hope. Right? Because you know you'll see them again. And you know where they are. In fact, sometimes people call this the land of the living. It's actually the land of the dying. Heaven's the land of the living. This ain't the land of the living right here, folks. This is the land of the dying, okay? I just want to change that paradigm. So when our loved ones die and they're in Christ, they know Christ, they're in heaven. <laughs> they're more alive today than they've ever been. And they'll never have to pass through death again. Okay, so I'm pretty envious of them, quite frankly. So Paul says, you know, so look. Okay, if you lose loved ones, and we all have, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to grieve as somebody who has no hope. It's okay to grieve, but don't grieve as no hope. Here, here's why. 
Here's why, verse 14. Since, here's why, since we don't need to grieve as those who hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Now, I believe, simple reading of that says that Jesus will bring with him those who are currently with him when he comes back. Christ followers who are now with Jesus... He will bring back with him those who have died are with Christ will come back with him. Now, what Paul says next is new. This is a new revelation. Now, he's an apostle sent by God. And so he is about to teach us something brand new. All right, the Old Testament talked about the coming wrath of God. Jesus talked about it, but nobody had shared this new information. So Paul is getting ready to, sim- to share something that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has been revealed to him. Here's what he says. For this we say to you by a revelation from the Lord. All right, this isn't something I'm making up just to make you feel good. God has told me, reveal this to me to share it to you. <clears throat> we, Christ followers, who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I'm going to unpack this. We could spend hours and hours on these passages, and we're not obviously going to have that time this morning, but let's do a little bit of unpacking. Christ followers who have died. We all know Christ followers who have died. Okay, when they come back with Jesus, initially they're in the spirit. Their spirit is what, what's in heaven, right? They're not in a body, all right? They are in, in, in heaven. Their spirits are in heaven. But apparently when they come back, what's going to happen? They're going to be united with their bodies, all right? That's going to be pretty crazy. That's going to be wild. But God, who's all-powerful, is going to, in some cases, totally recreate their body, going to glorify their body, and their spirit and body is going to be instantly joined, and they're going to be coming back with him. So again, when I do funerals uh, of a Christ follower, which are, I don't want to say the easiest, but they are the easiest funeral to do because I know where they are. Uh, and I, I, I have that hope. I, I know what's going on. And I always tell people when we do the graveside, this is not her final resting place. One day that body will come out of this grave and be united with her spirit. Okay? I don't understand exactly all that, but then again, I can't understand half the things in this world. I just know God's far beyond me. But someday, those bodies will be united. See, currently... We all kind of have these conceptions of heaven, but I think currently heaven is inhabited by the spirits of Christ's followers and Old Testament saints, okay? <clears throat> and, but even though our loved ones are in heaven, I would argue they're not experiencing heaven in high definition. Have you all ever had old analog TVs, okay? We've got color TV, it looked great, but if you ever get high def, it's like, whoa, those people look real. People in heaven now, believe me, it's heaven, okay? They're experiencing it. But when they get their spirit joined with their body, that's high def. Make sense? They can smell. They can taste. 
they, you know, they can see now their conscience, I believe that. But when their body is united in spirit, that's high definition. Okay? High definition. Here, here's the one of the things. We're getting ready to, uh, to celebrate the Lord's, the Lord's table. And one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I won't drink this fruit of the vine, speaking of the juice, until I drink it anew with you. All right? One, one thing, you know, when Jesus resurrected and he appeared to the disciples that night, remember what, what he told them to do? He said, touch me, right? Because he said, spirits don't have flesh and bone. He ate in front of their presence. He drank in front of their presence to show them that he is not a spirit. He is fully in resurrected bodily. He, he, here's the thing. So what am I, to, uh, the way I infer that, spirits don't eat and they don't drink. All right? So Jesus says, but there's coming a day when your spirits will be united with your body and we will all in bodies be enjoying this. I'll be drinking it with you in heaven. And so again, when this time when Jesus comes back, those who are died will be reunited and they will be in their bodies, okay? Now, there's another fact I want to point out that may not be so obvious. What about believers who have died before Jesus? What about Old Testament saints? Well, one of Paul's favorite words or favorite phrases to describe Christ's followers, those who have put their faith in Christ, is that they are in Christ. That's how he would describe the church. The church is comprised of people who are in Christ. And he uses his favorite description here in verse 16. Notice he says, The Lord was sent from heaven with a shout, the trumpet of God, and the dead. Notice where the dead are at. In Christ will rise first. So apparently, as the way I would understand it, we're not talking about Old Testament saints. We are talking about the church. Those saints who have died in Christ will rise first. Now you say, what about the Old Testament saints? They will be resurrected, but not at this point. Okay? At least that's the way I understand what Paul is saying. Now later, John will flesh that out in the book of Revelation. We're not going to jump into that. And there's apparently a third group in the book of Revelation chapter 7, those who die in the tribulation, the day of God's wrath. So actually, when you look at Scripture, the way I understand it, we have three groups. You have the Old Testament saints, you have the church, and you actually have those who die during the tribulation period. But in this passage, the way I understand it, Paul is talking about the church. Those who have died in Christ, he will bring back with them. They were, their spirits and their body will be united there before the day of wrath happens. And in fact, you might say, well, okay, those who've died in Christ, what's going to happen to us if we're still alive? Well, Paul answers that question. Look at verse 17. Then we, talking about Christ followers, who are still alive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So at the same time, it's going to be instantaneous. So, you know, it's just going to be, okay? <laughs> but... They're going to be reunited, and we're going to be caught up, and we're going to be with them in the air. Now, I'm not going to get too deep in this. Let me say this. There are wonderful Christ followers who have different opinions on the exact timing of things here. 
Okay? And some of y'all may come out of uh, other backgrounds and see it at this point. Some see it at this point. Some see it at this point. I'm not going to sit here and create division over that. All I know is I believe that this is going to happen before God pours out his wrath on the earth. Some Christ followers think that we're going to be like Noah in the, in the boat and God's going to pour out his wrath and Christ followers, the church will still be here, but somehow we'll be miraculously spared from God's wrath. I personally believe we are talking at before the wrath of God is pulled out. He is going to pull us out of this earth, this world. We will not face the wrath of God and certainly won't face the thing that happens to humanity. Again, some people have different opinions about the timing, whatever. I will say this, we all agree Jesus is coming back. Amen. So that's what I'm looking forward to, all right? So the way I understand it, Paul says we're going to be pulled out before this wrath to come. So I want to share with you something real quick. Christ followers, I just want to hammer this home before we look at the Lord's table. Christ followers will be rescued from the coming wrath. If you are a follower of Jesus, He's not going to pour out his wrath on you. Now, it doesn't mean we may not suffer persecution at the hands of people. Y'all make that clear? All right, this is not an escapism. But we're not going to be suffering the wrath of God. And Paul says in the last verse, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let me give you some words of encouragement. Christ followers will not face God's wrath. All right, now those who are not Christ followers, and if you're watching this morning and you're not a Christ follower and you're like, you know, what is a Christ follower? A Christ follower is a person that says, I put my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. I recognize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. All right, those who refuse and reject God will face God's wrath. Okay, but Christ followers were not. Christ's followers, loved ones in Christ will also be resurrected. So if you have family members who are in Christ, in other words, they too are Christ's followers, they're going to be resurrected. And that's wonderful. That grave is not their final resting place. That's what Paul says. This is something that God has revealed to me that I want to share with you. Here's another one. If you are alive, and I'll be honest, I kind of wouldn't mind that. All right. I mean, a lot of us are kind of hoping, you know, I wouldn't mind being alive. If you're alive when Jesus comes back, you will be caught up in the air with him and the resurrected members of Christ's church. Okay. That's going to be pretty wild. Whoa, I'm 40,000 feet up. I don't know. It's going to be crazy, you know. But again, that should be a word of encouragement. And another one. Christ followers will ultimately experience heaven in a body with all the senses. We will experience heaven in high definition. And when that day comes, when we're in our resurrected bodies, apparently will be the day when we will partake of this with the Lord himself anew in the kingdom of God. And I'm looking forward to that day. So, the Lord's Table, which we're going to share this morning, we do this on the fifth Sunday. <clears throat> In light of what Paul taught, we wouldn't have this hope, we wouldn't have this encouragement if it weren't for what this table represents. This table represents the fact that Jesus, who will rescue us from the wrath to come, rescued us from 
sin, the penalty of sin, by taking his sin, our sin upon him on the cross and dying on the cross. The bread represents his body, which was broken for us. The juice represents his blood, which was shed for us. And because Christ did this, those who respond to his call, guess what? We're rescued from the wrath to come. So this morning, as we participate in the Lord's table, I ask as you take the bread, as you take the juice, and that you have some moments of reflection and you thank the Lord for what he did. You know, we're so thankful for men and women who died at the Revolutionary War so, and other wars so that we can have freedom. But earthly freedom has nothing compared to spiritual freedom. Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice to defeat the ultimate enemy, sin and death. And that's what this is about. And this says, those of you who are Christ followers, you're not going to face the wrath of God. He rescues us from that to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you as a follower of Jesus. I have placed my complete, I place my complete trust in him. That Father won't have to face your wrath. This is certainly break our hearts and certainly spur us on to share the good news of the gospel so that people will respond or so people will hear and Father, that they will respond to your word. Father, thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins. Father, thank you for the blessed hope of his return. And we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is certainly my hope, and I believe the hope of this congregation, that we'll live to see the return of Jesus. But if not then we know we'll be coming with him anyways when he comes back. Thank you for those words of encouragement. Thank you for the hope for the hurting. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.